This is the Police Canine Training Podcast with Jeff Meyer. Join us for each episode to get real-world advice from canine professionals who have experience on the street. Each episode will focus on up-to-date information that you can use on the street. Spend about 30 minutes with us each week as part of your training day. Our goal at Police Canine Training is to make every canine team be the best they can be. Welcome to the Police Canine Training Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I'm excited today because I have a couple of scientists on here, and they've recently uh, p- uh, published a new paper uh, regarding training aids for bomb dogs. So I have Lauren DeGrief and Michelle Mon on here. Their paper has been, it's, I've already seen it uh, show up on quite a few of the social media platforms and stuff. So if you haven't seen it, um, I'll have a link to it. But I wanted to get them on here to kind of explain to, um, especially people like me that aren't scientists, kind of in layman layman's terms, what this study was about and what the findings were. So with that, I'm going to start with uh, both of uh, my guests here introducing themselves a little bit. So Lauren, I've had you on my old podcast a few times, but this is the first time you've been on this one. So if you don't mind uh, kind of introducing yourself and telling our listeners about you. Of course, sure. So I'm Lauren DeGrief. I'm at um, Florida International University. I'm a chemistry professor there. Um, you might have heard me before when I was with the Naval Research Laboratory. I was there for about 10 years. But uh, my research is the same, no matter which place I was at. And I do, um, I look at the chemistry of odor. So I try to figure out what the dogs are smelling, how much is there, um, and then how the, tr- the dogs might have trouble smelling it, and then how we can train them better. Let me ask you, how do how does a person end up in that field? I mean, it's so specific, the <laughs> chemistry of odor. What, what drew you to that? Um, I honestly, I went to graduate school and I wanted to study arson. And now, like, I wanted to do inedible liquid residue analysis. And I don't know why. I can't remember what reasoning behind that was. Um, and I heard Ken Furton give a talk about um, human scent dogs and the chemistry he does to determine um, how similar or different human scent is for individual people. And I thought it was fascinating. I had no idea that that was a type of forensic science because um, my PhD is in forensic chemistry. Uh, so I thought it was really cool. And I joined his research group and then I just stayed in the field permanently, apparently. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we have Michelle Mon here. Could you also introduce yourself? Yep. My name is Michelle Mon. I am a contractor research scientist for the United States Army of Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland. I work at a small um, army installation there and the center that I work for is called the Combat Capabilities Development Command, Chemical Biological Center. So we've abbreviated that to DEVCOM CBC. And um, in my capacity as a research scientist there, I study a little bit of everything um, to do with olfactory sciences. Uh, but the the main focus has been on military working dogs and working on ways to enhance their current capabilities. And so uh, one of the easiest or fastest or best ways to do that is by um, working with talented people like Lauren DeGrief and Nathan Hall and others to figure out what is actually um, in their training aids. Sure. And how long have you been working with the military dogs? Yeah, since 2012. Was that something that you were hoping to get into when you were going to school too, or did you just kind of fall into it also? Um, a little bit of both. So I always knew that I wanted to work with animals. I thought I was going to go more into the applied side of veterinary medicine. Um, but then when I did a little bit of research in my undergraduate studies and then uh, continued in my graduate studies, I, I really fell in love with the, the research aspect of uh, canine physiology and um, canine training. So that was really uh, sort of a, a natural flow from there. And did you did you know much about uh, military working dogs or police working dogs before? Zero, zero. What what surprised like what, my... when, <laughs> when you look back now? What surprises you about them? What what it, something you didn't know at all about them? Um. So I think the. What fascinates me the most is that they're so good at what they do. Um, And and really, you know, I I tend to focus on the detection side of things. And 
I would have thought that's because we helped them along, like the humans helped them along. But I really believe that after seeing uh, sort of the, the quality of the tools that we give these dogs to detect, I mean, just like Im- impossibly difficult to detect substances, that they find these things in spite of us and not because of us. That's interesting. And I, I, I agree. I think uh, I think we, we might lead them the, the way and stuff, but I think the genetics are, are just, they, I've been doing it a long time and it still impresses me sometimes what dogs are capable of. And I don't even think, I don't think we really uh, utilize, you know, a, a vast majority of what they could do if we if we knew what they could do. Yeah, agreed. So let's talk about you guys' study. And I don't know who wants to take the lead on this, but maybe uh, start with some background as to, to what what it is and, uh, you know, how it got started. And I, I know it's a fairly long-term project. Michelle, I'll let you start since you're the one who was able to um, make this project happen from the beginning. Right. So um, my work wife and I, Jenna Gatberry, had uh, realized that there was certainly a need for uh, a non-detonable training aid for certain training aids, especially the peroxides. And we brought that issue up to a uh, government agency that agreed with us. And they decided to uh, fund the study that would essentially look for uh, a suitable non-detonable training aid for HMTD and TADP. Um, and then uh, COVID happened. So everything kind of came to a screeching halt for a bit and um, funding was compromised a little bit in terms of uh, you know how far the money would go. These research projects tend to be wildly expensive uh, not just on, you know, the analytical chemistry side of the house where Lauren works, but especially on the canine side where we have to do uh, or have to use green dogs. So dogs that are naive to odor uh, in our studies to make sure that they're not generalizing from a previously trained odor to the the target odors that we're testing. Okay. So um, green dog research is very expensive. And, uh, and in this one, we used uh, actual military working dogs that okay. were new to the, the, to the U S. Yeah. So, so let me, let me um, jump in right there. Cause I, I'll ask a question on that. Yeah. Where, where do you get the green dogs and how do, I mean, I know my listeners are going to want to know about that. I assume you worked with a vendor who uh, probably contracted. No. So, so actually we, we have um, at the, at the army, there's a memorandum of understanding between uh, DevCom CBC and 341st training squadron, which is, in Lackland uh-huh. Air Force Base in Texas, where all of the military working dogs are. And so these dogs were essentially borrowed um, and were used sort of in between uh, procurement and when they started training school. Okay. And so uh, we didn't have to go to a vendor, but um, the, the process of using canines in research at all is just is really expensive. Um, also because we fall under a ton of regulations. Sure. Uh, from the Animal Welfare Act to the Department of Defense um, research development, test and evaluation regulations and whatnot. So there's a, a lot of people with a lot of oversight and it takes a, quite a bit of effort to get through those wickets. Sure. So it, so at some point you got some dogs and they were shipped to your facility? Yes. And, and then yet you, you were going to imprint those dogs. And I understand was, you didn't want any prior training on them at all. So they were brought to uh, Mr. Pat Nolan's facility, uh, which at the time was in Maryland. And that was super convenient because uh, Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland, right? And so he worked with um, another very talented trainer, Barry Magner, to train up these dogs. And we divided the dogs into two groups. So we had a control group and an experimental group. The experimental group... um, was trained on a non-detonable TATP training aid, and the control group was trained on true material, so um, actual TATP that was supplied by the Federal Bureau of Investigations un- under another um, you know, government sure. MOU type of agreement. That's fascinating. So sorry to interrupt because I, I got you off pace a little bit, but it, the it's I think it's good just for everybody to hear the amount of moving parts even just to get this going sounds 
pretty astronomical between the oversight and all the different agencies you have to work with. Yeah, I think it was um, probably a good year and a half of just hustle, making sure that we could talk to the right people in government. So I don't know how many people know this, but there is no federal money for uh, military working dog research, development, testing, evaluation. So there's um, money that goes into training the dogs and procuring them and deploying them, but absolutely no funding for research and development. So whenever we are trying to um, advocate for a study, we have to find someone that loves dogs, perhaps, or uh, understands the importance of dogs in explosive detection, which is our our primary mission. And uh, so we have to find those people and then uh, make sure that we are able to, you know, procure funding, spend it responsibly, and then set up a ton of agreements so that we can all work together together. so, Lauren, you started at Naval Research Lab. You were still at Naval Research Lab, rather, when this project started, right? Yeah, the the bulk of it was done there. And then we just did the end of it at FIU. We just transferred our, um, our methods over there. And I had my students do the end. So during a lot of um, Michelle's, I mean, she, she and Jenna went out and were able to um, drum up the money for the study in the first place, which is spectacular given how many obstacles there are just getting canine research money, as she mentioned. But while they were working on getting the dogs, we were able to start working on the science side, the chemistry, well, it's all science, I'm sorry. Sure. The chemistry side of, of things. Um, and, the you know, you think that paying chemists to do stuff is really expensive, but compared to the dogs, it's a lot cheaper. So... <laughs> She just tells me about the total price of things like this, which is why we can't get money. Sure. But um, um, so I was able to do. Um, they they tested the TATP training aids because you know we all agree that that's probably um the biggest threat and the biggest interest at least in the U.S. right now. Um, and uh, maybe it's not the biggest threat, but it's the biggest threat that people can't get training aids for yeah. because yeah. it is you know so it, it's um goes off so you know it's, it's, it's dangerous well, yeah. to work with yeah so but on the chemistry side we were able to look at um a handful of the commercial rdx and petn training aids not a handful we are we're able to look at rdx and petn training aids that were out there as well as the TATP and also the hmtd i had done an hmtd study prior but we wanted it to match as far as ex- that it was run in the exact same way as the TATP. So for the the RDX and PETN, that was just what does, or for all of them, for all of the RDX, PETN, THP, and HMTD, we wanted to know what does this odor look like chemically out of the package? And how does that compare to what we know about actual explosives? Um, so we did that with everything. And then we also looked at reproducibility. So if I, I we bought... Um, under each training aid manufacturer we bought two at the same time so we are going to call those the same lot obviously i don't know for sure that that's the same lot but that's what we're calling it and then a year and a half later for some of the ttp and hmtd aids we bought a third um and we're going to call that since it was a year and a half later a different lot um and looked at how reproducible it is because you really obviously you're being given these aids. There's no color change. There's nothing on it. You can't tell how much odor is there. You're just assuming it's there um, and assuming that every aid you buy is the same because obviously you want to know that you're training dog A to the same thing you're training dog B. Sure. Or or that when you get it out on day one and day five, it's the same thing. Um, so we looked at like kind of a snapshot in time. Like, okay, I bought it. I took it out of the bag. And what do these things look like? Um and the biggest thing that we were concerned about is the reproducibility. We just, we found that even when they were the same lot, that some of the training aids did not smell like what, like they didn't have the same odor components. Now, I don't know what that would mean to the dog because it's very hard to translate exactly from the chemistry to the dog, which is yeah. why it's really important in these studies to have both. And when you're talking about these aids that you're mentioning right now, these were all live explosive aids, the RDX and the PTN. These were the commercial alternative training alternative aids, so non, okay. oh, the, right. yeah. So we bought, we bought every, for Nest and BTN, we bought all the brands that were out there, so that was like Signature, TrueScent, Logics, Nest, what am I missing? 
precision explosives. Precision explosives. Oh, I'm sorry, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we looked at socks also. And then for the training for the peroxides, there was also Gallant and Tripwire. Tripwire, I think, might have the other ones, but they didn't have them out at the time that we were testing the okay. RDX and TTN. Okay. They weren't available yet. Um, and then for the TTP and HMTD, we went a step further and we looked at shelf life. Um, not shelf life, I'm sorry, usage life. So how, if we were using these, they were being pulled out of their bags for four hours a day, twice a week. And we wanted to see how long that lasted, how long that odor stayed there and how much did it change? Because if you could choose what you'd like is, for your odor to stay the same, same amount, same type of odor for as long as possible before it starts to drop off, sure. right? yeah. And then you kind of like to know when that drop-off occurs. So that's what we were trying to look at. And that was, so at the beginning of the study, that's what you were basically, what we're hoping to be able to quantify? Yeah. Um, and it's easier for the, the TATP um, to go on the very short little chemistry side uh, rabbit hole here so TTP, um, the molecule of TTP itself has a really high vapor pressure, which that means that the, the, there's a lot of actual TTP in the odor, like in the vapor that can be smelled. So it's really easy to it's it's very easy to measure because you're just you're looking for just the molecule of the explosive. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. HMTD is really complicated. The molecule itself doesn't like to be in the vapor phase, which means it's not an odor, can't be odorous. Um, but it does decompose into all kinds of different stinky things. Um, there's compounds that smell like solvent, like um, vinegar, like uh, fish um, that all mix up in that odor. But the, the thing that's complicated about HMTD is that it changes over time and it changes depending on how pure the HMTD you use to make the training aid. So that one's the really, really complex one. Okay. And when you so when when you started at that, was there because um, I know I already saw one post about that this is a study about pseudo versus real, and that was was that that wasn't really part of the study. No, not at all. No, we, we I mean we want to know if it looks like the real because that's yeah. the whole goal of buying a commercial training aid, right? It's, yeah. What good is it if it doesn't look anything like the real? So yeah, we want it to we want it to chemically and to the dog look like the real thing but no we are not out okay. to test and michelle did have a group that was trained on real and a group that was trained on on um it wasn't a pseudo it was a uh, oh it was a, it was mimic it was a mimic, mimic. uh no wait it was uh, <laughs> lauren <laughs> sorry cut that out um it, it was, was a dilution training aid dilution for- training aid yeah. no it was a soak so oh, you I, want to call that I tell you what, this Absorption actually aid. actually can we go over that real quick because sure. there's so many <laughs> training aids out there right now that I think a lot of uh, handlers um, don't really understand all the difference of them. So can we talk about use brand name or not? But I mean I understand there's difference. But you say mimic and a soak and stuff. But maybe that it would be a great time to kind of explain what these different aids are and if there's good or bad that you have found about those. That's a, that's a really great point. So um, this is, it's a really interesting thing to bring up because OSAC, which is um, OSAC Dogs and Sensors, which is a committee that is trying to um, set standards for certifications and for training of dogs to help improve the use and the utility and the proficiency of dogs um, broadly across the canine detection community. Um, they are pushing to do val- to have validated training aids. So that way, when you buy a training aid, you get, you know, kind of a, a piece of paper that says all of this important information about the training aid so you can make a more intelligent purchase because if you buy training aid manufacturer A and training aid manufacturer B, you get pieces of paper that look similar and you can compare them. Sure. Um, which is not how it is right now, right? Right now, it's just kind of like the Wild West. Yeah. But to answer your question, what we, what OSAC is the terms we're trying to come up with, we've come up with with OSAC is that the broad term is alternative training aid, which basically means anything that's not solely the true material. Okay. All right. So that's not your bulk TATP. Yeah. And then you have, um, we'll go with mimic first. A mimic is where you don't have the real material at all. Um, that you have, the chemists have decided these are the 
one, two, three, four, however many compounds that make up the odor of that. And then we um, mimic that odor by putting those chemicals on a substrate. So these can be very good because they can produce a very pure odor, but they can also be very dangerous because you need to know that, that, that it's mimicking the correct odor. Um, and so it's really important that mimic aids or any aids are validated with chemically, but then also with dogs. Um, and then you have sorption aids, which are like your common soak. So this is this could be something you make at home. This could be a cotton ball yeah. above your TATP, or this could be one that you buy that's made out of filter paper that's placed in the um, that soaks up the odor. Um, and if anybody's heard of like the Get Scent tubes or the new PDMS or Poker aids, those are ones where they've placed some kind of sorbent material in the headspace, and you can make your own training. Or for the Get Scent tubes, you can make your own training aids. Um, the, those are also very good because they do take a, they're, they're a snapshot of what the exact odor is of your training aid, um, which is great. So the limitation there is that if your training aid has any contamination, you've also picked up that part. Um, also you don't know how long that odor lasts. So you don't know how much odor you were able to soak onto that material. So you don't know when it's gone. And what can happen is that over time as the odor that you meant to be there decreases, the dog will start picking up on the odor of the substrate. So sure. let's say the filter paper, the cotton ball, whatever. And the dogs will just start to find, can just find cotton balls. Yeah. And they're not finding the odor. So yeah. that's, a, that's, that's a limitation there. Um, which one am I missing? Dilution. Michelle, take dilution. <laughs> <laughs> well, so actually, Lauren and, Lauren and I were debating this today. And, in, in, you know, sort of the, what are the scientific um, or chemical mechanisms underlying these different training aid technologies. And so um, the dilution ones are where you have the true material, so you have actual explosive, and you have a mixing agent. And through application of the, uh, or mixing of the mixing agent and the true material, you dilute the training aid, you dilute the explosive enough so that it's non-detonable. That's the, the, the sort of the theory behind it and the methodology behind it. And so oftentimes our dilution training aids are also uh, sorption training aids, meaning that they are absorption. So this goes down a crazy rabbit hole that actually Lauren and I both went down today, which was fun because we're nerds. <laughs> but, um, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, the dilution training aids have true material, tr uh, true material on them um, and are rendered non-detonable by that dilution process. Okay. And through right. through this study, you were going to look at each one of these types of train aids. So we looked at whatever is out there yeah. and they don't, some of them have patents that you can read and you can figure out which one it is. Some of them you have to guess at which one it is based on visually looking yeah. at it. Um, so, we weren't so much comparing one type to another as comparing to one, the, comparing the manufacturers to the real, each manufacturer individually back to the real thing. Does it look like the real thing and how long does it last yeah. and how, in how similar is, is sample one to sample two. And when, once you started doing that, um, did you have a, I mean, I guess the idea of this is you, you just set out, uh, here's what we're going to do without having a, an idea or did you already have an idea of this is what we're going to find and did that come true or did you learn different things? I, Lauren, I think there was a lot of surprises in this. Absolutely. Can you say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you absolutely. Discuss yours. I mean, my biggest surprise, as I, as I said, was that I, I was really surprised that there was not great reproducibility um, between aids of a lot of manufacturers. Um, I've already had one of the manufacturers reach out to me and say, you know, and discuss ideas of how to improve the reproducibility. And I thought that was so cool. Um, and just, uh, that's, you know, that's the whole point of this. It's not, I'm not out to say which training aid is better sure. or which training aid is worse. Yeah. Um, but I think that if a manufacturer comes to me and says, Hey, I think we're going to try this to improve reproducibility. What do you think? I think that's really the spirit of this kind of research. Yeah, because you guys, I mean, you're not in the training aid business, so you don't really no. have a, pardon the pun, you don't have a dog in the fight there. So it's I just do not about, have a dog in the fight. Just about, <laughs> just about in, improving, you know, the what, what we're training on. So I get the idea. Yeah, exactly. it, and, and I, I know that it, 
uh, frustrates handlers because they see this, you know, 19 page journal article. And like you said, Jeff, there's not even a, a picture on it <laughs> until page five. Um, and you know, it, it's, 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 uh, intense. There's a, there's a lot of work here. It's four years of work. Sure. So, uh, they look at this and they're like, okay, I just want to know what's freaking training you need to buy because at the end of the day that's what matters to them is yeah. you know which is going to be the best training aid for my dog to produce a, a capability operationally on the real thing so uh that's the bottom line for them and we don't um we don't provide opinions on these things like that's not the the spirit of science um and it's not you know what it it would be sort of introduce a lot of bias if we were to do that and so we have to report the data as as we find it and do our best to do a comparative analysis and a an objective analysis to uh get the good data out there so um lauren lauren's fantastic about all of that like she said these weren't um you know pitting one training aid against another it was it was really taking each um training aid as them as their own uh, sample and then comparing to the true material and comparing them to themselves between batches. Yeah. And one of the, the, the simple snapshot takeaways from the chemistry side that um, I think could be useful is, you know, I was, I went down that chemistry rabbit hole a second ago about, Oh, TTP is easier chemically speaking and HMTD is a lot more complex story um, that, that, that reads in the training aids. So, Ignoring the lot-to-lot issues, um, it is easier to make a TATP training aid and have it smell like TATP. Um, so if you can't get TATP, that's something you really want to train your dog on. You can feel relatively comfortable knowing that that is a good maintenance aid. Um, that one brand to another, you're not going to get crazy differences. The one thing I would be aware of is that some of them have more acetone than others. So I would make sure you're proofing off of acetone. Um, but that's going to be the same as real TTP unless sure. you're getting it from the FBI. Sure. So, you know, that's something to, that, to bear in mind. Um, but HMTD is a very different story. It is the, the actual bulk HMT is really complicated. If you get really pure HMTD from the FBI, it smells like one thing. It smells solventy. And then if you get... Um, more clandestine type um, HMTD. It smells uh, more vinegary. And then both of them, as they age, they start, they start to smell like fish. So the odor of those, at least to a human, change a lot. So trying to mimic that in an aid or or make a desorption aid or whatever kind is a lot more challenging. So that's where you really want to be careful about relying too heavily on those commercial aids. And it's really important to get your dog on as many different versions of that. If HMTD is a goal to get your dog on as many different versions as you can and try to enhance that generalization. Okay. And that I, I, I like that idea of always, you know, same with when I, train bomb dog handlers i always want them to go and train with other units absolutely just to yeah. use their aids if nothing else just every you know as many different ones as you can as possible yeah when i give talks when i give seminars that's always my main takeaway is just train on everybody's everything yeah it's the best you got yeah yeah don't don't imprint on it necessarily no, no, no. No, yeah. <laughs> right. that's what we say just you know get get as get as much variability in in your training as possible once you have imprinted on something that you believe is the purest form, then you go, you, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so what were some of the surprises that uh, on all this? Michelle. I can go over some of the dog ones. So yeah. um, I guess there was, there was a lot, right? But um, one of the things I find pretty fascinating is that the – True material trained dogs, so that's the control group, um, had m- many sessions and many reps with, by all means, you know, one of the most talented canine trainers in the country, um, uh, Pat Nolan and, and sure. Barry Magner. So, right. So, you know, let's let's take out uh, trainer variability and just say that, you know, the training was sound. And these dogs had, a, you know, a lot of reps on, on really good quality uh, FBI made TTP and and in the test um, it still took the dogs a while to sort of get the hang of generalizing from 
the the TATP they saw in training and the TATP that they saw on the test. And those uh, were and both FBI TTPs, correct? Yes, they were correct, just made exactly. at different. Like one was made for training, and then one was brought in for testing, right? Exactly. And so I thought that was really fascinating because if I think about how often most handlers get access to quality TATP or any TATP for that matter, uh, maybe it's quarterly at the yeah, most yeah. For, for most folks, and um, and so and and they're getting access to it when there's probably a hundred other handlers around waiting for you to go through your round of cinder blocks Mm -hmm. and get through it as fast as possible. And you can't move the training aids. So the dogs figures out the game pretty quickly. Exactly. And right. And then, and then uh, we're expected to have a capability on uh, TETP. So I think that uh, what some of what this study highlights is that uh, we just, we do need a non-detonable TATP training aid and, and we need uh, good access to it or, or frequent access to it so that our dogs can generalize right away or spontaneously. The other thing that I found uh, pretty fascinating was that everyone wanted a thumbs up or thumbs down, like did this work or did it not work? And I guess I had somewhat expected um, that, you know, red light, green light answer as well. And it's, like Lauren and I all say like it's complicated and everyone hates that answer (laughs) yeah everybody groans I know and I groan too I'm just like oh I I really just wish I could tell you you know one yes it worked no it didn't work but what was really fascinating I I thought was that um the the non-detonable training aid that uh the experimental group was trained on those dogs didn't spontaneously generalize to the real thing, the true material TATP, but they did generalize to it. And it took them a little while, but and I thought it was so true. TATP dogs a, a little, little while, while, a little less while, like not as right, long, but it did right. also and take them a second too. Yes, exactly. And so, so, you know, there, there was that difference, you know, statistically significant difference between the two groups However, what I what we realized and actually what Dr. Nathan Hall helped really elucidate for us was that that you could have a non-detonable training and it gets you halfway there or it gets you 75 percent of the way there. So that when you do have access to the real thing at an FBI canine training or, Uh or something, that you're that much further ahead than than, you know, than you would have been if you hadn't if your dog hadn't ever seen it. So that's sort of the nuance of. Um, these uh, non-detonable training aids still having a ton of utility, even though they're not perfect yet. And and I think making a canine training aid is incredibly really complex. hard. Oh my god, I'm so glad I'm not in that business. <laughs> uh, I mean, and, you know, given that we can't even make a TTP training aid that's perfect, and that's the easy one, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. And, and so, so that it's so difficult. And then, you know, here, Lauren and I, uh, you know, Lauren and her ivory tower and me, I don't even know, I'm in some like shack somewhere, but <laughs> you know, we're, we're going around and telling people, Oh, you know, an ideal training aid has these qualities and these, the qualities that we're outlining are ridiculously high, you know, yeah. uh, a high standard. Um, like, you know, having to have the same odor that's identical to the true material for the entire shelf life or service life. And so, you know, we say that, and that is the ideal because those are the kind of training aids, or if you're talking about an analytical chemistry um, calibration standard that you would use for one of Lauren's instruments in her lab, that those standards do meet those criteria. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why she's able, Lauren's able to do what she does when she's analyzing these training aids is because she can she has a, a proper standard but we don't have a standard in canine and i think that's why um you know we're, we're talking about it, people think we argue about just definitions just funsies um yeah. but i think really what it <laughs> what it comes down to is that we are trying to enhance and further our own field and we can only do that when we're all speaking the same language when we agree on terminology and when we, when we raise the bar. And so I think this is a, an important first step in raising that bar. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> it, the study is interesting and definitely worthwhile. So in a nutshell, um, 
what would you what what are some of the big takeaways from from the study if if somebody isn't going to read the whole study because again I've already seen some some absolute things on social media that mm-hmm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys have seen them. I'm sure they don't bother you one bit, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so there's it doesn't seem like there's a ton of absolutes here. So, what are some of the big takeaways that um, when guys listen to this, when they read it on a Facebook post, they realize that that's somebody else's opinion that wasn't part of the study? Uh, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in. You have see to it first. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so. I would say don't let anyone interpret this for you. Because unless it's an actual one of us. <laughs> yeah, like unless it's one of the scientists that was involved or, you know, I, I, you could talk, you could call Paul, Dr. Paula Tiedemann up have, tomorrow. You talk to us or Lorna Irish or Paola Tiedemann. <laughs> yeah. So, Sorry for you know, so you're, <laughs> so you could, you know, talk to any of the scientists in this field and they would, you know, most aren't likely selling echo. something. Talk to the right. scientists that aren't don't have a dog in the fight. Exactly, and yeah. so, and just like whenever there's you know the latest and greatest medical study out there, they typically ask some doctor who was not involved in the study to comment on it. Yeah, and that's sort of you know that objective third party analysis. So, yeah. so don't let someone interpret this for you. Um, ask questions, you know, get into it, and realize that you know as much as we would have loved that. It was, um, you know, black and white. It's everything in canine exists in the gray area. And um, like Lauren and I said that, that, you know, creating a canine training aid is incredibly complex and difficult. And, um, you know, I I do believe that most people out there are really trying their best to to make a good one. Sure. So the the concrete takeaways, I think, are... um, be aware that maybe reproducibility for some of these is not great. So if your dog is telling you that the new training aid you bought doesn't have odor on it, believe your dog and don't force your dog into it because there's the potential that you're going to start training the dog on nothing, like on the yeah, odor absolutely. of the yeah. blank. Because that that we that that's a you know that's something to be really careful about that we didn't know about before. That was definitely and, new to me. And how common um, was that problem? Um, I don't know because I would have liked to have had like scientists don't have two replicates and then one other one. But, yeah. Like we usually like to have tons, but they're so expensive and I needed a lot. Yeah. We just didn't, we weren't able to get enough. So I don't know how prevalent that is, but there were multiple brands where they were vastly different amounts. And there was a couple where there was nothing that I could, that doesn't mean the dogs couldn't detect yeah. anything, but I couldn't detect anything. So it was very low. Okay. So that was a big thing. And so be aware of that. Um, but I think, the combination of the chemical analysis of the TTP and then the dog uh, study that Michelle did is, you know, it may not be perfect. There is TTP odor on most of these and it could, it can get you a part of the way there. And I think that's really important. And then my other takeaway is, you know, HMTD might be the same, but be a bit wary on it. It is more complicated. Okay. I mean, those are all good, valuable takeaways. So, um, the study, as a, you know, to reiterate, it's not saying whether you should use pseudo or real. It, it wasn't nope. about that. But, nope. but what it's saying is that, you know, understand the aids could be different. So you could buy from manufacturer, you know, Bob's pseudo scent today, and then six months from now, Bob's pseudo scent might not be as good as it was the first time. So, right. So trust your dog. And you were seeing that because I know you had dogs do that, um, do the study also. Were you seeing that in the field with the dogs? We weren't able to test that with the dogs. We did not see that one coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. we didn't prepare. Sure. <laughs> had we, I mean, I think we expected a little variation here and there, but like we didn't expect such stark differences in some of them. So I, we just, we, we didn't prepare yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. Quite I'll, I'll also add that we didn't have any pseudo in this study. You're right. The main manufacturer of pseudos, it's not a pseudo for the. No, the RDX and um, PETN were pseudos. Oh, fine, fine. Sorry for the TATP. So the TATP okay. training aid was. Um, none of them are pseudos. Yeah. And none, none of, the of those are pseudos. pseudos. That's exactly. So those are uh, true material. Those are all. Uh, dilution okay. training or sorptions. Okay. They're all dilution or sorption. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. And was there any surprise with when you had the dogs out um, and working the dogs? Did any of that come back as a surprise with what you, the results you were getting? 
yeah, we don't like working with the pointy ears in general <laughs> when you don't when you don't need the pointy ears. Uh, there's just they add a lot of complexity to the uh, <laughs> detection studies. So uh, I certainly would prefer to to work with um, the floppy ears. I, I think Pat and Barry would echo my sentiments on that. Um, but you know the all dogs can do detection, and so uh, you know they certainly performed and as as we needed. It was just I think a, a bit harder on on the training side to to manage all that energy. And did you see um, if, with the, the aids? Did you did the dogs tell you anything about the aids too that the that confirmed or or challenged what you were seeing on the science part of it? Um, no, I didn't so, think so. so yeah, think? I was about to say we didn't have enough. Um, like we we didn't we didn't test we didn't have, for that. There was well, there was nothing. I didn't. Let's put it. I don't think we had enough information to be able to say that it was in agreement, but we didn't right. have anything to say that it was not in agreement. Okay. How about that for a non-answer? <laughs> I know, it's right? A bit, it's Laura, a bit are of you an running answer. for office? <laughs> I mean, but, so the answer is not not necessarily yes, but it's not no. We know it's not no. Yeah. So so the dog the dogs <laughs> were confused. the dogs yeah, were right. were showing a trained behavior on the odor that they were supposed to. Right, and yes. we and we showed that there is that odor was present, and they sh- thus should have been able, and it was the primary odor, and thus they should have been able to detect it. So, and that was kind of the purpose of having the dogs in the study, wasn't it? Just to, for that, or right. was there was there other reasons to have the dogs part of the study? Um, I just think it's the chemistry alone, because we don't know what, and, and I won't go down. Yeah, the, I have a really good side story for this, but I'm not going to go into it because it's too long. But um, we don't know what odorants the dogs are alerting yeah. to yeah. Um, again ttp is really simple but like in general we don't know what odorants the dogs are alerting yeah. to without asking them so it's just really important and especially when you're looking at these studies to be pairing dogs dog studies with the chemistry whenever possible you don't see it as often and don't judge a study because it didn't do that it is usually a cost prohibitive option oh, but imagine. whenever you can see them together it's it's definitely stronger yeah so any I'll, other takeaways? I'll say also that, you know, it's the, um, we could have training aids that uh, don't look on, uh, on Lauren's instruments. Like they would be a good match for the true material, but in the real world, they could quote unquote work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the dogs would be able to generalize from, you know, the, the training yeah. aid to the real thing. And so we don't know that until we actually do a canine study and because and it's because we're using a different sensor yeah Yeah. so past stuff i've done with ammonium nitrate my chemical analysis has matched very much what the dogs have done the story made complete sense um outside of your realm but i've also done some work with blood dogs where the chemical analysis perfectly matched what the dogs are doing but then i've done some work with fentanyl where i'm still scratching my head so it doesn't always work out as a perfect story yeah, but hopefully the uh, not to get off on tangent. Hopefully the fentanyl comes around though, because it's yeah, it's yeah. important. Now. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in my, I I hate to take you know a a million hours of work and probably way more than millions of dollars in in investment and everything and try to boil it down to you know thirty or forty minutes. But I do keep these podcasts around this length. Um, so I hate to, I don't want to cut anything off. So if I'm missing anything, jump in now, but you know, I think we got some of the big takeaways and, and to sum it up, you know, how, what would you guys want to say to kind of sum up this whole discussion? Oh, that's all, that's all Michelle's alley. She loves a good summing it up. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren does like me to uh, write up the conclusion. Part. <laughs> I do. Well, I honestly, Michelle, I make everybody who's else is a co-author on my papers, write up the conclusion. I know I don't like to write my own. <laughs> oh, Lauren! I thought I was special. I mean, sure. I know it's a, it's it's okay. Um, I think I think we accomplished the aim of the study. I think that um, the the canine training aid manufacturers have a lot of potential, and and if and when they um, they create more reproducibility, I believe we will be able to run a study that can give us some more concrete uh, conclusions from the the training aids. Fair enough. There is there's nothing in the study that I see and nothing that I hear 
um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that is saying don't use any of these aids. Correct. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because, well, I mean, there might be one one or two that didn't have any odor on them that yeah. you know. I'd yeah. Say, hey, yeah. Maybe, there was one maybe that didn't not have any odor on it. That, that, yeah. That, yeah. That one I would avoid. Yeah, um, and I right. think you can but dig no, through the like, study. Like, like I said, that. yeah, like I said, we're not making you know recommendations. Mm-hmm. We're we're showing objectively the the data. Yeah, I just know that over the years. And as you guys know, that the the whole argument about, especially with the narc dogs, pseudo versus real and all that goes back and forth. And people are very passionate about it, which is good because we're passionate about what we do. But I've already seen it a little bit. And I think this could be one of those things where people use this study without reading it and and try and balance Uh it in their own argument. So I thought it would be good to have you on here early in this process. Um, I don't know if you've done any other podcast yet on this um, subject, but you know, to be able to say from the, the authors of this podcast, there's not a definitive pseudo versus real. There's not a definitive brand A versus brand B. It's basically that there is some value. Maybe we need to, to move the needle a little bit on the science part of the the uh, training aids. But I, I don't really see you saying any big negatives about any of them. And Absolutely. No. Anything, so. No, that's that's a great way to wrap that up as well. Yeah. Um, at least in terms of the the intent and the take home messages. So, I am super appreciative of you giving us this opportunity. I feel like, uh, you know, most people are not going to read this, and and that's okay. Uh, we will try and do these sort of bite sized uh, takeaway message type of absolutely. Um, yeah, interviews or or podcasts or webinars or what have you, so that we can put this out in a, in a digestible format for our end users and. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate any time anyone's interested in our work. So Absolutely. Uh, definitely thank you for reaching out. Yeah, thanks yeah, for coming absolutely. on. And I know you guys are, like I said, I know you're, you've put a lot of work into this. So by no means am I trying to minimize it. I'm just trying to kind of do the reader Reader's Digest version for everybody on this. But I do. Yeah, I, I also appreciate a good cliff notes. <laughs> exactly. Agreed. <laughs> I mean, we're a scientist and we don't always, we, we, we usually read the abstracts. Yeah, Perfect. Well, thanks, you guys. I appreciate your time. And uh, as I get feedback from this, I most likely will be uh, reaching out and maybe we'll get you back on. I'll keep some questions. I get a lot of feedback on this podcast. If I get a bunch of questions, I might bring you back on and we'll do some question and answers. That would be we'll fun. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Hopefully you guys uh, got something out of this little bit of a confusing subject i think a lot of people kind of want a hard answer like pseudo versus real or something and obviously you know you're not going to get that from this study but that's why i wanted to have the doctors on tonight just to show that if you hear other opinions you know these are the the uh, part of the team that did this study and they're here to say that uh, a lot of these um, hard and fast definitive answers that i see some people posted on social media are just the other people's opinions not the the people who actually did the study so take that for what it's worth uh the the bottom line is do quality training make sure you're training with uh, uh good trainers you have a good training group you're and mostly uh especially the bomb dogs expose your dogs to lots and lots of different odors um meaning lots of different other uh, agencies, training aids and stuff. The more different people's training aids you can use, the better, especially for the bomb dogs. The dope dogs get to find real dope on the street and are exposed to lots of different dope on a pretty regular basis. Luckily for those of us that uh, have handled bomb dogs in the U.S., we don't find a lot of bombs. So uh, that means it's real incumbent on you to go out and find lots of different groups to train with, if nothing else, just to keep using their odors. And finally, I want to let you know I'm going to be, I've got some uh, classes scheduled, a couple of good uh, classes coming up. If you check out my website at policecaninetraining.net, scroll down and look at the upcoming classes. You can check out where uh, we got some classes coming up. We have e-collar classes, a decoy class, an advanced patrol dog class, and then uh, we're going to be announcing a, a, a conference here in Colorado here real quickly. So uh, check that information out, and we'll be uh, looking forward to to seeing you at the classes. Or if you want to host your own class, all the information on the website uh, make it real easy to host your own class. So if you want to do a class that we put on, just uh, contact me, and we'll get that put together. It's pretty simple. And I want to wrap up by thanking our sponsors as usual. So uh, again, we have Cats uh, Platinum, so Cats Canine Training Systems. Check out catsplatinum.com. 
They've been around for 30 years, and you can do uh, like a 45-day trial on the website, I believe. But it's uh, easy to, to check it out, uh, even if you're using a different brand. Get on there, play around with it. Maybe it's something you want to switch to. You can always contact Bob Eden, and he'll uh, walk you through everything. And he does he handles all of his own customer service. So catsplatinum.com for uh, the Canine Record Training System. And then uh, DemonyBiteSuits.com. Uh, I've mentioned here quite a bit in the last month that I really do personally wear a Demony Bite suit. I like them a lot. Uh, check them out, uh, DemonyBiteSuits.com. The prices are, are right in line with everybody else, but you can get custom sizings, custom colors, custom everything right there at DemonyBiteSuits.com. And lastly, CompleteCanineTraining.com. So check out Complete Canine Training. Uh, you can give Chris a call. His number is 720 204 1929 at Complete Canine Training. His website is Complete Canine Training. So it's complete and then canine spelled out C A N I N E training.com. Check out that website. They've got uh, dogs for sale, classes coming up, decoy schools, all kinds of different stuff going on on the website. So check out Complete Canine Training.com for see what they got going on over there. So again, everybody, thanks for listening. I appreciate it and I appreciate all the good feedback. Uh, one last plea to kind of, if you take just one quick second to go scroll down when you finish this podcast and rate it, it'll help uh, the search engine still. So thanks, everybody. Be safe.